This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Welcome, everyone. I'm Randy Moore, along with Andy Payton, and it's good to see you, Andy. It's been a few days. Yeah, um, you've been away a little bit, Randy, and it's good to have you back. It's good to be back. Um, and hey, thanks for joining us for our podcast. We really appreciate it. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a background on on what we do here, maybe you're new to the podcast, but uh, Pastor Andy is the senior pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. I'm an associate pastor at Methodist Temple. And what we like to do with the podcast is reflect on last Sunday's sermon and last Sunday's service, last Sunday's text, or in this case, last Sunday's article from the Articles of Religion, and then to look forward to the next Sunday. We like to say that you don't have to have heard the sermon or been in the service. You're welcome to join us in the service, and you're welcome to listen to the sermon. But we think that the podcast speaks for itself, but we do it because we we do want to reflect on it. We don't want our so our sermons and our services to sort of uh, just be here one day and gone the next, but we like for them to sort of stick because we do believe that they are important. Uh, before we uh, do that, though, we always do sort of a soul check-in, and then we also want to say a word or two, I think, uh, Pastor Andy, about uh, the fact that we're between the second and the third Sundays in, in Advent. And I know uh, we record on Wednesdays, and this happens to be December 13th, and so you've just come back from the University of Evansville, and I know as someone, those men uh, who died on that airplane, the players, are contemporary with me. Mm-hmm. I think about that, especially after the passing of all the years, that they would be my age. Uh, they would be re- they would be approaching retirement. Mm-hmm. They they would have had their families and their and their careers and and their lives, and they would be uh, beginning to enter into a season of life where you know they could uh, enjoy you know everything that had had gone on. So I, I just wonder, um, you know, for you, you uh, in your role at the University of Evansville, you were there at their annual memorial service today. And I know, even though you're you're younger and you weren't here, you're not you're not from Evansville. That's a it's an important day and a powerful thing, and has to affect your soul. Yeah, um, it's sobering. I don't I'm trying to think of the right words to use. Um, I wasn't even alive in 1977 when it happened, and yet you look out at the crowd when we gathered to remember that day, and you see people who would have been in the university at that time, they still come back even 46 years later, it's 1977. So 46 years, years later, they come back to remember. I just, just had lunch with someone that was a senior at University of Evansville when it happened. And they said they lost two fraternity brothers mm. in an instant. And the tragedy, the trauma, um, the closest thing I know that I've experienced in my life to it maybe would be like 9-11 kind of thing. It's a smaller example of that in terms mm-hmm. of it affects the university and this community more specifically than you know, 11 of course, was much, I don't know, more worldwide, I guess, in a sense. Right. But, um, yeah. So I'm processing that, I guess, as you asked me what my how my soul <laughs> is. I uh, came right out of that to talk about the podcast. But uh, in terms of just uh, the season of the year, Advent, Christmas around the corner, 
I, I guess if I were just going to be really authentic, my soul is a little anxious about things that are yet to come and wanting to make sure I meet my deadlines and all that stuff that happens this time of year. A lot of people are going on Christmas break. I'm, you know, we're doubling down at <laughs> right. this point. And, and so, yeah, it, it's hard to make that space for God to to enter in if we're not careful. Well, and you have little children still. I uh, I still have children and uh, they're still going to be part of my Christmas, but not like children in the house. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, the energy is great. Yeah. The kids are it's fabulous. Uh, Christmas right. is magical. And, and uh, we have Annie the elf at our house and Annie does something different every night. And uh, so we enjoy all that, that aspect of it, but uh, balancing, what you know, you want to make Christmas a great time for your children, balancing that with the demands of being a pastor, and yeah. it just can be challenging. So, <laughs> my soul's a little anxious today. All right. Well, mine too. Uh, we are getting close, and we might as well go ahead and say that Christmas Eve falls on Sunday this year, and so I will be preaching at a combined service uh, here at Methodist Temple on Christmas Eve at 10 a.m. We're going to have our Sunday school at nine, and then you'll be uh, doing those evening services. Yeah, we had the four and seven, and thinking about already what we're going to say at that point. <laughs> so, yeah. And they're going to be beautiful services. For for me, I think in terms of the special services we do throughout the year, uh, beyond Sunday morning, the Christmas Eve worship services are some of the most meaningful and impactful to my own soul. So certainly look forward to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's jump right on in. Once again, for those uh, who might not be familiar with what we do here, um, right now, uh, Pastor Andy is in a sermon series on the 25 Articles of Religion for the Methodists. Now, these are articles that were handed on to the, the uh, growing Methodist movement uh, in America um, by John Wesley, uh, who, of course, was an uh, Anglican priest. And uh, he took those from the 39 Articles of Religion uh, from the Church of England, um, abridged those down to 25, and handed them on to us. And we've talked about this before, and this one fits that category. Uh, these are essentially Reformation documents because they, they did come out of the Church of England. There was an English Reformation, which was different than the Continental Reformation, but it was a Reformation. Uh, we are Protestants. And so many of these articles have an anti-Catholic flavor. Mm -hmm. And you would, you would expect that because they're captured at, at, a, at a moment in time. Wesley uh, deleted some of them, but not all of them. There are several of them who are, are left in here, and this is one of them. We've been, on the last few weeks, in the sacraments. We had an, an article of religion on the sacraments, you know, sacraments uh, one on baptism, one on Holy Communion. And now we're up to Article 19, which is noteworthy. Uh, before we finish today, we'll talk a little bit about Article 20, and we're beginning to see the, the finish line. So Article 19, the title of it is, Of Both Kinds. The cup of the Lord, it says, is not to be denied to the lay people, for both the parts of the Lord's Supper, by Christ's ordinance and commandment, ought to be administered to all Christians alike. So, Pastor Andy, I'll let you say what you want to say about that article, and, and I'll let you make the transition into how you got from that article to your sermon. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so, this article is based upon a, a practice that happened within Christianity in the Middle Ages, and they would basically only offer the bread to people and not give the lay people the cup. And there was a theological reason for that. They they believed that 
Jesus is sacramentally present in both the bread and the cup. And so literally Jesus is in that. So he, he didn't want crumbs of Jesus falling on the floor. He didn't want drops of Jesus, you know, spilling. And and so in a sense, I just to give them the benefit of the doubt, they were trying to honor their theology of the sacrament. And so fair enough. Uh, the other reason uh, for me is a little more problematic, and that is they didn't think that lay people were worthy enough to receive the full sacrament. They weren't holy enough to receive the full sacrament. And my response to that would be basically, well, none of us are really worthy enough to go forward to the Lord's table. That's kind of the kind of the point. Um, and so in the Methodist tradition, we call it open communion. And what we mean by that is the Lord's table is open to anyone, anyone. So in a sense, we don't even live into this, this, this article all the way because it says Christians all alike. So uh, the article assumes that you're a Christian. That's the, you could go to the table uh, then. You have to be a Christian beforehand. Um, but we don't believe that necessarily. You can be a non-believer just to, just to push the envelope. You could be a non-believer and go forward to the table. And the reason we believe that is because uh, we we think of communion as a converting ordinance, to use Wesley's terminology. It's a it's a point where you could come to faith. It's a point where you can experience almost a conversion type of thing. And so we don't deny it to anyone, period. And and so how does that fit into where I went with my sermon? Um, I think I think a lot of people thought that the way I would have applied the sermon was like uh, talking about the importance of inclusivity within the life of the church. Um, and that's very important. I don't ever want to sidestep that. Um, the church has always struggled with being fully inclusive. Um, we struggled with it in terms of the ordination of women. Uh, earlier, earlier in that, we struggled with it in terms of how do we, how do we respond to slavery. Um, in our current era, we struggle with inclusivity in terms of uh, who can be ordained and, and married and, and what our response should be to the LGBTQIA community. And so my quick answer to that is, we should be inclusive. It's an open table policy. Um, and so it's not our place to say who's in, who's out. It's our place to love all people like Christ. And so uh, everyone at the church, though, they've that's been here for very long knows that about me. They know that's what I think. And so I thought if I went down that path, that's kind of like almost in a sense preaching to the choir at this point. And so I thought, how can I take this a different way? And the way that I try to use this article is um, – as a challenge that we have to be inclusive to ourselves. And it's through being inclusive to ourselves that we really learn how to be inclusive to others. Um, what we have a tendency to do as people, I think is, and this is true for all people, is we run from our pain. We suppress our pain, we hide our pain. And so what happens is as we suppress that pain, hide that pain from ourselves and God, also, um, of course, God knows all about it, probably better better than we do, <laughs> technically, but, you know, we try to hide it. What happens, though, is we suppress that same stuff in other people. And another way to apply this is, like, a lot of times what we don't like about ourselves, we don't like about other people. And so, really, it's kind of a backdoor way to en encourage the inclusivity that we, we hope for. 
That's interesting. I don't remember hearing you say that. I was at home. I happened to be at home and I was listening live to the 1130 uh, service and I always take notes. I don't just take notes because we're doing this. I always take notes um, in sermons. My Bibles are full of um, notes. I've uh, formed my own sermons out of the notes that I've taken from other, you know, from other sermons. I don't remember you saying that. Uh, maybe you said it or maybe you said it at at, at, uh, at 10 o'clock, but I, but I like it. It helps me connect to the whole idea that it, we, we, we're not even accepting of ourselves. No. Yeah. No, we're not. I'm not. You're not. Yeah. There's things that we don't like about ourselves. Yeah. And to bring our full selves to God, we, we bring all of that out of hiding. We bring that all. And then we experience full communion with God. Then we're able to experience it. And uh, essentially what happens, though, is as you begin to forgive your own pain, Maybe that's a good way to talk about it. we forgive our own pain. Or then we're able to give grace to others. We're able to give grace to others. And you've seen this happen. I've seen this happen throughout, throughout our lives. Like when people aren't in a place where they've dealt with their stuff, they will minimize the stuff of other people too. It, I don't know. It's the games that we as humans play. Humans play. Yeah, but underneath the surface of my sermon – that's kind of the th thinking that was in my mind. How do I get there, but just in a different way? Yeah, uh, it's true to life, and it's true to Scripture, and it's true to the Psalms. I'm just beginning a study of, of the Psalms, and uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, has a little bitty book, and um, he his framework for looking at the Psalms is Psalms of Orientation, Psalms of disorientation mm. and Psalms of reorientation mm. fits right along with the life of Christ, with the life and the death and resurrection of mm -hmm. Christ. And so we want to be oriented at all times. I think that's a little bit of what you're saying. We we want to be oriented. And if we're not oriented, something's wrong. What on, in the world do we, uh, what are we doing in church? Mm -hmm. But there will, and there are, and there are Psalms that like Psalm 1, uh, there are psalms that make it seem like everything's good, everything's everything's oriented, but then there are psalms of disorientation. Mm -hmm. Psalm twenty-two, which uh, came from the lips of Jesus on the cross, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Now that one, if you keep reading, it has a happier ending, and he begins to see the reorientation. And then there are psalms of reorientation. So it's true to life. There is, there are good times and bad times, and there is, there are redemptive times, and um, it. it it's nothing we necessarily bring. Well, we can bring it on ourselves, but it's just part of the part of life. Yeah. When you said that, was it was it again? Orientation, orientation disorientation, reorientation. So when you were saying that, I thought about what we describe as Christians as the mystery of our faith: that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Mm -hmm. And we want to just kind of like make that up to be this linear thing. We're like, well, we'll die and then we'll be risen and that's it and we're good. No, it's this is a pattern. Right. This is the pattern of our lives. Uh, to be in communion with God is to enter into the pattern of our lives. That means that um, at some level we are always grieving and always rising again constantly, constantly. You're letting go and in letting go you're making room for more constantly. And what happens is we get stuck. And we don't let go. And we start to try to implement a, a set of rules that used to work that no longer works. And, and the reason it no longer works is because life has changed. <laughs> and, and then what happens then is as we try to implement the rules that no longer work, people get angry and they get frustrated, they get bitter, and they lash out. And it's, it's, it's about grieving well. 
Yeah. And you judge yourself unworthy to receive communion. And yes. so you don't receive communion. And so if you don't receive communion, that's a sin in and of itself <laughs> in some in some areas. And so now you're stuck. Well, yes. And and so and this is Randy, this is gonna sound so basic, but for me as a pastor, I have a tendency to be kind of a perfectionist. And so there have been some seasons in my life where I've thought, because I'm angry, not spiritual. Because I'm grieving, not spiritual. Because I lack inner peace, not spiritual. And that's just devastating when you get in that spot because you feel like you're inadequate. You feel like you don't measure up. And what the good news of the gospel is you can bring your whole self, all those things. Um, the image that comes to my mind is Jesus, of course. He said It says he was tested and tempted in every way we are. And yet it says he, he did not sin, of course. But if you think about that, though, Jesus had a lot of stuff going on, just like we do. And what he invites us to do is to understand that we don't have to run from God because of those things. We can bring that to God and, and name that to God and confess that to God. Is And that's what the Psalms are kind of giving us permission to do. And we don't have to suppress that in ourselves and we don't have to deny that in other people. And it's such a healthier mode of living out our life and our walk with God, but also our walk with one another. I did hear you say this. You said, so continue to live the spiritual journey. You know, mm -hmm. just because you were down on yourself or I'm down on myself doesn't mean we step aside from the spiritual journey. That is the spiritual journey. So live it, live mm -hmm. into it, stick with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just accept the paradox of life, yeah. the paradox of, of being alive. Um, the way I made the connection in terms of Advent was I went to the Advent wreath and talked about what do we mean by hope? What do we mean by peace and joy and love? And what happens a lot of times is that we think of hope, peace, joy, and love in connection with the events of our lives. And this is the big pivot here. Um, so when we say we hope, we're hoping for a certain event to happen within our lives. Um, when we want peace, typically we want a vacation from our problems. There Again, we're hoping for some sort of event to go away within our lives. Um, same with joy. Um, when we talk about joy, what are, we, what are we saying we want to be joyful about? We want it to go our way. And, and certainly love play, plays in that too. We, we mistake it for a warm and fluffy feeling. And again, that, what, that, what that warm and fluffy feeling stuff does for Christians is if you think that the spiritual life is all about being warm and fluffy, then the moment you no longer feel warm and fluffy, then you're going to probably run to a different community to give you the experience and feeling you want, and you will end up living out a very shallow uh, faith. For, I mean, that sounds judgmental, <laughs> but if you're just running from feel-good experience to feel-good experience, right. I have a definition for that. That's an addiction. That's an addiction. <laughs> you're, you're running to just feel good, and it's like a pleasure cruise. And so what spiritual hope, uh, spiritual hope is then is it's like a confidence in God, not in the advance of my life. It's a confidence that comes from my centering in God, same for peace. It's a security in God, not from the events of my life. I'm secure in God, no matter what happens. Joy. I'm joyful in God. I rejoice, it says, in the Lord. When the Apostle Paul starts talking about rejoicing in the Lord, he's saying that stuff. For example, Paul's saying that stuff when he's in prison, waiting possible execution. And then love. If Jesus is our model for love, um, it's not always a warm and fluffy feeling. It looks like the cross. 
it looks like that. It, it looks like surrender. It looks like laying down our lives um, as God is laying God's life down for us. And so this is a much different way of experiencing the spiritual journey and, and living out our lives um, in Christ. I love the increasing light idea of the of the Advent wreath. You know, on the first Sunday, you just got that one candle shining into the darkness. By the fourth Sunday in Advent, you have four. And then on Christmas, you have the Christ candle in, in the center and, and the incarnation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. Rit ritually <laughs> perfect. Uh, right. I, even, even I would add the fact that in Advent, Advent occurs during the darkest time of the year. The, the, the days get shorter, the darkness grows, and then in the middle of it, we make the pivot where the, the light begins to grow and shine. It, mm -hmm. And it, it's such a, it's a very uh, symbolic season, yeah. you know. It would be nice to do the services in the evening when the sanctuary would be dark, only lit by the candles. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the power of Christmas Eve. Yeah. You know, you, you dim the lights, yeah. you light the candles, um, you sing Silent Night, in the silence, God's light shines. Like, it's yeah. so very, it's all very perfect. Now, <laughs> if you think it's going to be this nostalgic kind of experience, then I think you're searching for the wrong thing. Yeah. I, um, and that's what I'm trying to say. Well, as always, you switched into uh, John Wesley to sort of uh, get his take on what's going on here and return to the idea of Christian perfection. Uh, also known as entire uh, sanctification, and that um, that we just keep Christ uh, before us. And uh, you said that Wesley uh, said that Methodists walk with God continually, always seeing the God who is invisible. Mm. That's a beautiful quote. I I never came across that quote until the sermon. Honestly, I just was thumbing through uh, his little. Wesley's little book called The Plain Account of Christian Perfection. And, and when I saw that quote, honestly, the thing that thought, I thought to myself is like, I knew I wasn't crazy. I knew I wasn't crazy. <laughs> I knew I heard this somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I Well, and, you know, basically what Wesley's saying is like, well, what's it mean to be a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone that keeps Christ before him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Always. That's your goal. Habitually keeping Christ uh, before us is what it means to live out the Christian life. And uh, there have been some times uh, throughout my ministry where people would say things like, well, I can't see Christ in that person. I don't know if they're a Christian or not. I, I can't see God in that person. I don't know if they've accepted God or not, and that kind of thing. And, and basically, uh, my response to that, to that all along has been, well, it doesn't matter. God's already accepted them. Yeah. And, and that's the good news of the gospel. God's with us. Now, it helps a lot when you come across a quote like that from someone like John Wesley. And what it helps with is, is that it's like that same voice that spoke through us here also spoke there. Yeah. It's like a confirmation, like, yes, yes, this is it. This is it. Mm -hmm. And so Christian perfection, though, that word is, is problematic for people. Absolutely. And, and one of the reasons it's problematic is the word perfection. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm, well, I'm not perfect, that kind of thing. And, and a lot of times uh, perfection has been associated with kind of like this moral perfection, this ethical perfection. But really, that's not it. Like what it is, is little by little and bit by bit, 
uh, as I walk with God, as I have that daily rendezvous with God, as I pray with God, God becomes more and more real to us. And we become more and more aware of God. And uh, even in some cases, people just end up, they call it union with God. They walk in union with God. And we would call those folks like saints, mm-hmm. you know, the saints of the world or union with God. There's just a presence about them. And and that really is helpful because it defines what does the finish line look like? What's the goal we're striving for? It's not just that when we die, we go to heaven. It's about experiencing that heaven in our life today and, and walking with God today. Mm-hmm. I don't believe Wesley ever uh, maintained that he had reached perfection. He thought that um, you had to reach perfection before you came into the presence of God ultimately. And so a lot of times that perfection might happen at the point of death. But he said, expect it now. Mm-hmm. Expect it now. And he had a case. He had the case of uh, Jane Cooper. I remember reading it in the Heights and Rights or uh, Wesley and the people called Methodists. And uh, I could probably recite it. But since you recited it in the in the sermon, I'll let you tell the story of Jane Cooper. It's a fascinating story. And, yeah. um, and it should be noted again that the fact is he used a female to yeah. tell the story of Christian perfection in a time when uh, women were not held, held in the same esteem as men, both in the church and in society. And Wesley was convinced that the Methodists would not be what they were without women in leadership, women helping the movement along. So just throw that out right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, Jane Cooper um, is a lady who, in the prime of her life, experienced what she described as happiness in God, that habitual awareness of God's presence, and even maintained it uh, through some dreadful events in her life. She ends up dying of smallpox and awful death it it talks about she get she has convulsions and things like that toward the end and in wesley's writings he documents that kind of thing but um she throughout all of that still maintained that she dwelled with god she dwelled with god and and i just i don't know it's such a it's such a beautiful story it it's an inspiring story and I think it's deep down the story we're all kind of deep down looking for. You hear a story like this from a lady like that, Jane Cooper, who by and large has been forgotten by the world. And you think, though, something happens, stirs within me. It's like, that's just so true. That's just so true. That's that's what I'm for. That's what I'm here for. I, I want to walk like that. I want to be in that presence, too. Um, I do think we have to accept that that reality on faith. I don't think we can know it until we get there, until we get where she went. Then you can know it. I don't. I, I, I love to hear about it, and I'm hopeful about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you really don't know how far you've journeyed until it doesn't go as planned. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you have hope in the midst of despair, you have joy in the midst of very unhappy times, you have a sense of peace in the midst of very unpeaceful times, and somehow you're able to love God, even in the midst of, this is not a very loving season. I I remember I had a, a professor who said it this way, how, how you respond at your crucifixion determines the success of your ministry. That's not a great selling point, is it? Like, I, Whoa. Oh, you're saying I'm going to get crucified? Well, yeah, Jesus did, you know. Yeah. In a sense, we're all going to be crucified. We're all going to die. Mortality is going to catch us all. And we can spend our times, our, our, our lives running from it, acting like it's not true. <laughs> but I'm here to say it's true. Yes. And, and what the gospel says is turn and face death. And 
well, the line from Paul is like, where, oh, death is your sting, right? Like you turn and face it and you you face the tragedy of the world and the grief of the world and you face it and say, hey, you know what? That's not my true destination, though. That's not where I'm really going. And right. you're getting somewhere when you're able to do that, though. Yeah. Facing uh, facing your fears. Um and then you said, and this was kind of your wrap-up, you said, if we're going to get uh, there, if we're going to attain this perfection or even get close to it, grow uh, in Christian love, we've got to practice. And you talked about active prayer and contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. It's really two sides of one coin. Um, active prayer and contemplative prayer are basically uh, two sides of the coin that has to, it has to be a part of our lives in that we have to engage God. If we want to walk with God, we have to engage God, just as any other relationship with our, in our lives. You know, if you want that relationship, you want it to become real, then you have to actively make it happen. And active prayer, of course, is the way we typically think of prayer. It's like things we say to God, songs we sing to God. I would even throw in there like service we do for God, mm-hmm. you know, to our neighbor, that kind of thing. Oh, that's very important. Oh, it's very, very important. Um, but what contemplative prayer is, it's more like, um, instead of more activity based, it's, it's more like you try to empty yourself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's listening and, and you sit in the presence of God. You seek to be present to the presence of God and you sit in silent prayer. Um, that's a form of prayer that has by and large been kind of pushed aside in the Protestant world. Mm-hmm. And uh, in our culture today, I mean, for those of us who grew up with Christianity, 1980s and 90s, um, as like Buddhism and meditation has kind of come on in our culture, this idea of silent prayer is kind of like perceived as woo-woo-y and mm-hmm. new agey and stuff like that. And it's not that way at all. I would argue it goes back to Jesus. Um, Jesus was actively engaging in contemplative prayer when he goes to the wilderness for 40 days. You know, he wasn't constantly talking to God for 40 days. He was he was being present to the presence of God. And and also, I would argue, facing his demons um, in that presence. And then other times in the Gospels, it says Jesus goes all night, like he prays all night. And he's clearly listening to God. It points to this idea of contemplative prayer where we sit in the, in the presence of God. And we really what happens in that silence and solitude is we begin to learn to abide in abide in God. God teaches us how we can abide in God. That's what begins to happen. Uh, Thomas Akempis, who's someone I've been reading a little bit lately, said that in silence and solitude, we regain what the world has stolen from us. I think that's a great line, you know. And uh, um, and so basically what happens, though, is you you just learn to be present to the presence of God. And that becomes like kind of like a background over time, what happens is little by little, bit by bit, it becomes the background of your daily life. You have the sense of God's presence. And, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna talk a little experientially on this just for a moment. So what's that like? What is it like to be present to the presence? Now, it's not like you hear audible voices. It's not like you see angels in the sky. It's not like any of that. But the best I can describe it is like to steal from the words of Paul again, it's like a peace that surpasses my understanding. It's like a stillness that fills in the gaps. It's like this sense like I'm secure even when it's not secure right now. All that kind of thing. That's what it feels like. 
is very real. It's pal- it's palpable. Oh, it really is. Silence is not nothing. Silence is something. Uh, silence is a good word. Uh, presence is a good word. I was thinking of the word awareness, mm-hmm. and I think that um, uh, your awareness is heightened uh, of God's presence during contemplative prayer, and it's because you've practiced um, dismissing distractions. Mm-hmm. And if you can dismiss distractions, that's why it's called, I mean, I think that's why it's called the practice. When you're in contemplative prayer, you are gently dismissing, distracting thoughts so that you can be with God. Here comes another distracting thought. I got you going by. I got you going by. And that, and that lasts for 20 minutes twice a day. And if, if you can develop that practice in that 20 minutes, lo and behold, you find out that 24 seven, you're able to avoid those distractions that come at you hot and heavy right. the, the rest of the day. Well, yeah. yeah. And what, what you end up learning to do is it's not like the st- distractions stop. It's not like no. these emotional experiences stop. It's They don't last as long, Yeah, basically. They just don't last as long. You've gotten used to kind of naming it and letting it go. You yeah. name it and let it go in the presence. And, and if you watch it, like in a contemplative prayer, in a sit, I'll call it a contemplative sit, yeah. if you – you know, let's say you're sitting there in the chapel and and you're you're trying to be present in the presence of God, and then worry about work comes up. That's something that happens to me a lot. I think of work a lot, especially this time of year. Um, you notice it, you name it, you confess it, and then you kind of just wait there for a second, and you don't try to make it go away. If you watch it long enough, it goes away on its own. It it goes away on its own, and you start to learn how to not get hijacked by these experiences in our lives. And you can maintain that sense of, I liked what you said, presence or awareness or, mm-hmm. or silence or stillness. There's different ways that people talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's good. I've been, uh, I'm not, um, I'm not an expert. I mean, I taught a four week class on contemplative prayer and we have a, a group that came out of that. It's a small group and they love it. And I, and I love that group, but it's not, it is for everybody, but it's not for everybody. You, you know, it's like a lot of us and I'm this way too, in the beginning, it's like, wow, this just seems like a colossal waste of time. I could do much more with this 20 minutes than just sit here and do nothing. Uh, because we are so oriented toward brain activity and doing something and thinking something, you know, and those thoughts do come at us all the time. That's the other thing that contemplative prayer makes us aware of is that all of these unconscious thoughts or subconscious thoughts, they just keep coming at us. And that those are natural. That's that's what our brain is supposed to do uh, for us. I, I love what my brain tells me. It, my brain reminds me of stuff all the time that I need to know and, and do. Um but to be with God, you know, you, you learn to let those things go. As we said, notice them well, yeah. and, and let them go. And I'll just throw one thing out, one more thing out. Like in terms of how, like how long do you sit and that kind of thing, I think that's unique to each of us. I don't, yeah. You know, they recommend what, 20 minutes, like you said, twice a day, but it's kind of unique to each of us. Yeah. One of the things I, I have learned to do is like I know I've prayed, and that's how I'll describe it. I know I've prayed when my – negative, agitated, anxious energy switches to what Paul describes as fruits of the Spirit. And you can, if you sit long enough in it, like you'll watch it happen. It'll just happen on, not because you did it. it God kind of just does it. Right. And you become loving and joyful. Probably the easiest, most practical word I could throw out at this is like, you become receptive. 
you're receptive now and you're able to go along you go with the flow as they say mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh yeah i i think deep down we all kind of want to learn how to go with the flow and what contemplative prayer does is kind of teach us to do that and so you said you know it's not for everyone too randy and i, I certainly would echo that but yeah. If you're in a place in your own spiritual journey, this is the uh, last thing I'll say to it because I could just talk forever. Um, if you're in a place in spiritual journey where you you find yourself saying, hey, you know what? All these words and all this stuff's not working for me anymore. Try it. Just yeah. try it. It helps. Yeah. It really, really helps. Yeah. Yeah. I said it, it is for everybody, but it's not for everybody, meaning that people don't think it's for them. I think everybody could benefit from it. But mm-hmm. if we just look, and as you said, the entirety of Prot- the Protestant faith pretty much just doesn't include it, you know, um, you know, the two, the two people that, you know, I learned it from, they're both, they're both Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. you know, Father Thomas Keating and uh, John Main is the other one. And, um, you can't find a lot of, uh, Protestants who are at least writing books. Uh, no, or doing you don't classes. hear, you don't yeah. hear it very much talk of it at all. Yeah. Um, at all. And it's unfortunate because I, I think what we're missing is a very um, reliable, a very reliable practice that can help people have an experiential knowledge of God. And that's ultimately what we're going for, is I don't want this just to be some idea. I don't want this to be some sort of theory. I don't want this to be some sort of like doctrine that I'm defending. Instead, I want this to be like a lived experience. I want to know what it's like in my own life. And what happens in solitude, what happens in silence is you you basically allow God to teach you how to pray. It, that's what happens. And and you're right. It's just not talked about in the Protestant world, unfortunately. And yet, uh, through our central practice of Holy Communion, I mean, that's as contemplative you contemplative can get. I mean, here we are. We got this bread. We got this cup. We're holding it up saying, hey, Christ is before you. Christ is before you. Let's, let's be in communion. Let's be in communion. I mean— that's a ritualized version of contemplative prayer. You know, I mean, you don't have the cup and the bread in front of you, but you're putting Christ in front of you and you're learning how to abide in that. Well, in your sermon preparation, you asked me and some others, uh, you know, about our own contemplative prayer practices. And I was trying to find a, a way to really crystallize it. And, and I said that, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, it's the difference between reading about someone in a book mm-hmm. and actually having a relationship with someone. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm so much in my head. And as I've said before, I'm on slow motion seminary. So because I'm a local licensed pastor, I didn't go to seminary. So I'm taking classes two years at a time, you know, on, a, on the slow plan. So I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm always studying. And, you know, there, there's always, you know, four or six or eight books to read every year. And, I, and I, I do like that. So I'm reading about faith and reading about God and reading about Jesus. And that's all good. But at some point, you need to stop and start relating and experiencing mm-hmm. Jesus, God, the presence of the Spirit. And that's contemplative prayer. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what it is. And, well, there's a, there was a theologian who said... It was back in the 1960s or 50s or something like that. They said, the church is either going to learn to be contemplative or not be at all. That is a glaring critique, but I think it's true. I mean, unfortunately, I don't know. I I have to watch myself. I get kind of, I start critiquing Christianity (laughs) a little bit. And I don't, I don't want to come across like that. I don't want to come across negative or judgmental at all. But I, I worry sometimes though, that we get so caught up in making these performances happen 
as a substitute for a presence and experience that's there and available to us always, always. Andy, we know you haven't thrown out the doctrines for crying out loud. You're doing a 25-part series on the doctrine. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> point taken. Uh, yeah. I I don't know. I, I, I think in some ways <laughs> contemplative prayer has probably saved my faith. That's why I get so passionate about it just because I – you know, I, I was a seminary student who had all these ideas, yeah. and I read about all these stories about people talking about their experiences with God. And I was like, well, I, just, I want that, you know, like, and I think anyone that's listening to this podcast would want that. And so, yeah, yeah, it's not one or the other. It's both, right? No, yeah. I, yeah. no you, you know, the more I've done the silence, the more I've appreciated the other things we do, too. I, they speak to me more now. And and I think that's why you come back together. It's like active prayer, contemplative prayer. Um, you start to get a taste of the silence of God's presence, the silencing, the stillness of God's presence. And then from that stillness, you begin to, I find I start talking to God, not as if God were somewhere else, but right here. Yeah. And uh, random times, like just talking to God. And and then uh, and then when I approach my neighbor, I approach them in that same presence, not all the time, but sometimes. <laughs> right. and, and you just have this sense like this, you know, God's really speaking through this this experience with this person, holy cow, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, I'll throw one more Thomas Akempis quote out. Okay. And, and the listeners, uh, if you don't know who Thomas Akempis is, he wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. He lived in the 1400s. That book is argued to, they've argued that it's the most printed book just behind the Bible. So just kind of put that in the back of your head. So this is a very widely read book. Um, anyway. It's a good one. That was required reading for me as well. That's one of those many it's books on my wonderful, shelf. Yeah. Well, and Wesley, back to what yeah. he carried it with him. Yeah. Um, he recommended people read it. But uh, Akebus, anyway, has this quote where he says, when your heart is right, all of creation becomes a mirror of life. And everything, even the smallest things, speak of the goodness of God. I know when my heart is right, I'm, I see the goodness of God. And I know when I'm not right, you know, you see demons everywhere, you know, and your suspicion around the every corner. And, and I mean, you can apply that how you will at culture today, but you know, I, we need a little more Akimpus. So. Amen. Well, we've worked over contemplative prayer pretty well right there. Okay. So let's wrap this up because on Sunday, it will be the third Sunday in Advent. You will not be preaching on the Advent text. You'll be preaching on article 20. Article 20, wow, out of 25, we're almost there. And it's another one of those uh, that falls in that category where it is critical of um, uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, but it's in there. And uh, let me just read it. It's called, Of the One Oblation of Christ Finished Upon the Cross. And the description says this, The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Wherefore, the sacrifice of masses, in which it is commonly said that the priest doth offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt, is a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit. Uh, end of paragraph. As we've noted, as we've noted before, they don't spare the harsh language. And again, this even applies to 
to Scripture, these things were written in a specific point in time when specific things were going on. And um, let's just say while the Protestants and the Catholics, you know, aren't, you know, getting along great today, they're getting along a whole lot better than they did back then. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so... I'll let you uh, briefly preview Sunday's sermon. <laughs> uh, well, um, I it always saddens me I to read this about how they spoke of one another. And you know what's behind this is just this hatred of one another. It's just so tragic that that happened of all places in the church. And, yeah. and come on. But anyway, this is uh, our article. And what it does kind of speak to, though, is this notion of and this is something that Methodists were very passionate about from the beginning. It's this idea of universal atonement. And what we mean by that is God is universally available to everyone, everyone. And so uh, it speaks to that. And this sermon, what I'm going to hope to do is talk about how keeping the cross before us, you know, I've been talking about keeping Christ before us, but another way to think about that is to keep the cro- keeping the cross before us is a pathway to finding joy and talk about what that might mean for our lives today and how it could give our own lives meaning uh, for today. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. That'll be Article 20, just um, five more to go after that. And then what in the world will we do? We'll, we'll see. You don't have to say right now. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Just know that you're invited to join us here in person anytime right here on Lincoln Avenue in Evansville. You can join us online. Uh, Just have a blessed week, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.